country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Gemma Purdy from the Australia Indonesia Centre. In today's episode, we speak with anthropologist Sophie Chow, whose research reveals the extraordinary way of life of the Marind people, the indigenous peoples of Merauke district in West Papua, their symbiotic relationships to the forest, its plants and animals, and the impact of the expansion of palm oil plantations on this way of life. Hello, Sophie. Thank you so much for being here on Talking Indonesia. Hi there, Emma. It's lovely to be here. Well, Sophie, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about the Marind people in Merauke District in West Papua, where you lived for some years for your research. Sure. So, yes, over the last four or five years, I've done a lot of field work in uh, the district of Merauke among an indigenous community and known locally as the Marind Anim, or Marind for short, uh, Anim simply means human or person. I was living in a few different Marin settlements along the upper reaches of the Bian River in eastern Merauke, not far from the national border with Papua New Guinea. The Marin communities who hosted me um, very much dependent on the forest for much of their subsistence to this day, although many have now been sedentarized in settlements. This process started during the Dutch period uh, and continued again during the Indonesian period. So there's about 750 households of Marin in the area where I was working. Marind are Catholic by denomination, but they sustain a whole range of what one might call animistic beliefs. So basically notions of plants and animals as kindred and sentient beings with whom Marind entertain shared descent from ancestral spirits since time immemorial. And these sort of more than human relationships operate on a clan basis. So different clans are related to different plants and animals as well as elements of the forest. And these kinships are what guide Marin's interactions with the forest, with the landscape, with the rivers and so on. Wow. And how was it living there yourself? Yeah. So I was living in these settlements. A lot of my research was hosted by humanitarian branches at the local church, uh, which certainly made my access to the field more easy. I was sponsored by humanitarian organizations and most of my time was spent actually not so much in the settlements but rather in the forest. So traveling through the forest, bivouacking in sago groves in large part because of the subsistence patterns of the communities that I was living with but also because for a lot of Marind actually spending time in the forest and in the sago groves is is much nicer than being in the village because Mm -hmm. As they put it, the the forest is a space of freedom and of peace and of calm. It's a place where one reconnects with one's ancestors, with plants and animals and so on. And also the forest is a place that is devoid of the kind of pressures that can come from the heavy military and police presence that one does find in and around village settlements. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my research was actually in and with the forest uh, in the company of community members. And you've described the forest for the Marind as being like a kind of living history book. What do you Mm -hmm. mean by that? Sure. When I describe the forest as a living history book, I'm really trying to get at this sense among Marind that the past, the past events, past relationships, past interspecies encounters are really inscribed and embedded in the forest landscape. So for instance, people will read past events and encounters through the bark of particular trees. 
through which they'll read, um, for instance, past epidemics or droughts or flooding. There's all kinds of natural relief, so the curve of particular rivers, the relief of mounds, of mangroves and so on, in which people will read past encounters, both mythical and historical. And so walking through the forest is really walking through a kind of multi-species past, which makes journeying through the forest just as important as the destination that you're trying to get to. So people may travel to a sago grove to go and process sago pith, which is their staple starch, but it's really the journey of getting there that matters because along the way, people will tell, remember, recount stories of events, of meaningful events that happened to their clan, to their tribe, to their kindred plant and animal beings. And all of these are really inscribed in the material relief of the places that one travels through. You just mentioned there the kindred relationship between non-humans or plants and animals with the humans. Can you say a little bit more about that? You've used sago, you mentioned sago already, to illustrate this quite special symbiotic relationship. Yeah, so there's a really quite complex and more than human sociology at play here in Marin society, whereby the notion of personhood or, or being an animate agent is extended to all kinds of plant, animal and elemental beings with whom Marind share ancestral descent from Bema or creator spirits. And the relationships between humans and these plant and animal kin uh, are really anchored in principles of mutual exchange and care. So plants and animals grow, reproduce and propagate in order to provide food and other resources for their human kin. And in return, humans must exercise respect and care when they encounter plants and animals in the forest, when they hunt gather and consume them. Marind also engage in all kinds of strategies of indirect or minimal manipulation of the environment that seeks to enhance that environment and in doing so encourage the growth and reproduction of other than human beings. So that includes things like ring barking, like canopy thinning, you know, scattering seeds through the forest as you walk through it. So the idea is not to domesticate these species per se, but to render their environment conducive to more than human autonomous growth. So different clans entertain different relationships with particular plant and animal species. But the sago palm really was one of these more than human organisms that all Marin clans, men, women, youths and elders, all spoke to in deeply morally and effectively charged terms. Because this plant, on the one hand, is a source of their staple starch, but it's also much more than that for several different reasons. First of all, the, the sago palm is considered to be an entity that's imbued with life sustaining and nourishing wetness. So both in the form of its pith, that is feeding, but also in terms of the wetness that the palm accrues from the plants, the rivers and the soils that enable it to grow. And all these kinds of wetnesses are then transmitted to humans who come into contact with sago palms and who process its pith and who eventually consume, share, and exchange its starch. Uh, Marin talk about sago palm as, as a plant that knows how to live with others. It knows how to share space with others. Its own temporality of growth is intertwined with the growth of all kinds of other species with whom it entertains symbiotic relations, from insects to microbes to other humans to the wild boars and cassowaries that come to feed, mate, and drink at the mangroves where sago palms grow. So there's these incredible sort of interspecies companionships at play in the sago grove, which make it a really lively realm. And these stories of the sago palm are told and retold by Marind when they are in the space, when they are in the presence of the sago palm. Are you talking about plants that generations will go back to, the same plants or the same family of plants? Does that happen? 
Yes, absolutely. And there's a deep sort of intergenerational kind of relationship of care entertained both with individual palms um, and then with those individual palms suckers. So Sega usually re reproduces vegetatively, that is to say, not by seed, but rather through stolons or suckers that sort of emerge from the base of parent palms and grow within very close proximity to that parent. And so Marin talk about these suckers as Sego children, and following the growth of these Sego children is a key part of participating in the palm collective's social life. People will also sometimes bring back Sego suckers to the village and plant them close to their home. And in doing so, they're sort of taking a part of the forest with them. They're going to tend to the Sego sucker. They're going to nurture its growth. And eventually they'll bring it back to the grove so that it can be together with its own kin. So there are these interesting sort of uh, multi-species growths at play here and tracing, you know, where Sego suckers grow, who they grow close to. All of that says something about the humans as well that have been involved in tending them and supporting their growth. Wow, that's pretty extraordinary. One of the reasons for your research and, and what you were looking into in that part of the world was the palm oil industry and its impact, right, on these communities. Can you give us a little background on the history of oil palm extraction in this part of the world, in West Papua and Morocco in particular? Sure. So yes, really, my first visit to Merauke was as a project officer for an indigenous rights organization called Forest People's Program back in 2013, where I was doing a lot of investigative research on oil palm corporate activity in Merauke, but also other parts of Indonesia, and the extent to which these companies were respecting indigenous people's consent when it came to the land acquisition and land development process. Now, oil palm has seen a massive surge really since 2008 in Merauke, partly driven by the national food, fuel and finance crisis, which spurred a whole set of land grabs or large scale land acquisitions across the global south. The Merauke Integrated Food and Energy Estate is what this sort of large scale development was often called in Indonesia, and it was seeking to promote national food and fuel sovereignty, as well as make Indonesia a net food food and fuel exporting nation. But Merauke has a much longer history of extractive incursion. Oil palm itself, the first plantations were established um, in the 1960s, as documented by Georges Monbiot in his book, Poisoned Arrows. These were still quite small scale projects. There was at the same time plans for large scale rice cultivation, so paddy cultivation in and around the 1960s. And prior to that, the Dutch had begun to implement agriculture and horticulture schemes in Merauke for a whole range of introduced crops, including maize, peanuts, and so on. There was a lot of, of reluctance or reticence on the part of Marind, even all the way back during the colonial period in the face of these agricultural schemes. What my research suggested was there were cultural reasons why there was a reluctance to engage in horticulture. And part of that um, has to do with the idea of domestication uh, from Marind's perspective as a sort of violence enacted by humans to non-human entities. Domestication is often equated with control with a totalizing sort of domination of other than human life. And so many people were quite reticent to engage in those kinds of unrestrained violence rather than the kind of restrained care that they're used to in their relations to plants and animals 
in the forest. So oil palm expansion the last decade really is the latest manifestation of a much longer standing process of extractive incursion. Mining is, of course, another one more prevalent towards the north of Papua, but, but one that has certainly intensified in the last decade. And so it's fairly extensive into these regions and you've compared these plantations with the military garrisons in the region and you've used this term, which is quite strong, of a topography of terror in that part of the world. Can you explain what you mean there? How is there a comparison between the plantations and the military garrisons? Yeah, so one of the ways in which I analysed the sort of changing topographies of Merauke was through the concept of topographies of terror and very closely related to that, the concept of pressure points. So I talked about uh, a topography of terror because in light of the similarity that many Marind identified between military garrisons and monocrop plantations. A lot of that had to do with the fact that both of these zones are subject to very strict surveillance. They tend to be very strictly guarded. Um, monocrop plantations are very difficult to enter. And the military, in fact, often works in collusion with the corporate sector. They're often they work as plantation guards or security personnel. So there's a direct relationship between the military and corporate bodies uh, in Merauke and indeed elsewhere in Indonesia. Perhaps more interestingly for me was that Marind often compared soldiers uh, and oil palm in terms of their morphologies and their way of being. So people would compare, for instance, these monocrops, uh, you know, where all the trees grow in a very regimented form, they're all equidistant, they're homogeneous, they all look the same. And they would compare these monocrops to regiments of soldiers who mm. also all wear the same uniform, who are forced to, you know, walk the same way, use their bodies in the same way. Uh, many would compare the doctrines of Panchasila. And, and the rigorous military training that soldiers undergo to turn them into, you know, weapons of the state, to oil palm, which is also a plant that is subjected to all kinds of genetic, uh, agricultural manipulations in order mm -hmm. to make it a productive crop. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there were some really interesting resonances between military persons and plants that are being recruited as kind of biological allies of the state, to borrow Alfred Crosby's term. And so this idea of a topography of terror or topography of violence really tries to bring out the fact that monocrops are new in Merauke, but they accrue significance in relationship to longer standing state formations that have always given rise to fear, to unease, to a sense of being controlled among indigenous peoples in Merauke. And Oban plantations really just exacerbate those pre-existing affects of fear and of intimidation that are at play. And I use this idea of pressure points to talk about plantations and military zones and also roads for that matter, uh, because they're sort of ambivalent, like pressure points in Chinese medicine. A lot of these places are also associated with hopes for progress, modernity, the possibility of getting employment, of leaving your village, um, of finding a better somewhere, somewhere else, a better future for your children, at the same time as there are also places of violence, of dispossession and of displacement. So on the ground, what's the reality? Tell us a little bit about what it's like. You mentioned earlier that customary land rights are really not being respected in places like Marocco when it comes to making these deals between the oil palm companies, in this case, involving the military and that kind of thing. Tell us a little bit more about that. What agency, if any, do these Marind people or any Indigenous communities perhaps have when it comes to these deals and the land grabbing that's taking place? 
Yeah, I'll start with the land rights situation. It really lies at the core of a lot of the problems that are arising now, not just between Marwind communities and the state and corporations, but also fragmentation within and across Marwind settlements and clans. My research, both my PhD research and prior to that, my research at Forest People's Programme, really revealed that the right of Indigenous Marwind and Merauke to give or to withhold their free, prior and informed consent to oil palm developments is not being respected by the vast majority of companies on the ground. In many cases, communities are not being given enough information or they're not being given comprehensive and impartial information about the implications of land surrenders. So for instance, uh, you know, will the land revert back to them? Is there a chance for them to withdraw their consent later down the line? Many of them are signing contracts that they cannot read or whether the legal terminology is, is very opaque. Um, so that, that's been a major problem. There's also the issue of, of the lack of freedom involved in these decisions. A lot of them are being made under duress uh, in the presence of military personnel. So there's very, very little space um, for communities to maneuver. They're often not giving enough time to go back to the villages, discuss with their fellow constituents whether or not they want to get involved with these palm oil companies. And a lot of these companies are adopting a one-to-one approach to the consent process. So rather than consulting the community as a whole, over decisions that have to do with communal lands, collectively held lands. They tend to sort of pick select representatives from the communities and have these conversations with them, often not in the villages, but in Merauke City or even in Jayapura City. And then these sorts of one-on-one discussions and processes then do not represent the broader perspectives or opinions of the collective. So there's a lot of elite co-optation happening on the ground. I think it's really important here to emphasize that many community members are split over whether to endorse or eschew agribusiness is definitely not a black and white picture. People are torn. It's very difficult to say no to an oil palm project when there are very little other realistic economic alternatives available. Uh, The forest is disappearing very quickly. Oil palm is here to stay. So it's hard for communities to say no when there are no genuine economic other forms of subsistence available to them. So that's a major source of tension within and across the villages as well. Um, And indeed, there's been quite a lot of of friction and and violence, in fact, among Marin themselves, where people who are surrendering lands, even when it's under duress, are being accused of, of betraying their fellow clansmen, of betraying the plants and animals of the forest, of betraying the ancestors, and so on. In terms of agency, there's been a growing land rights movement in Merauke, particularly along the upper reaches of the Bian River, where I did my research. So grassroots struggles by communities, often with the support of national and local NGOs and church organizations to try to get their voices heard at the national and the international level. I was myself involved in helping these communities submit two submissions to the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, as well as submissions to the UN Special Rapporteur on the right to food and on the right to indigenous peoples. Now, these submissions made a lot of noise at the international level. You know, they didn't lead to concrete, immediate changes on the part of the corporations or the state on the ground. Mm-hmm. If anything, there was a there were negative repercussions in the sense that military and police presence intensified mm-hmm. in response to these international level forms of advocacy. And those were things that the communities knew were going to happen. We had a lot of conversations about the potential negative repercussions, um, and they were they were adamant that their voices needed to be heard. But it does mean that military presence has intensified on the ground. So there there are always costs to these kinds of international level forms of advocacy. Mm -hmm. But still, people can see a benefit in the longer term. Is that what the hope is? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the Marwind, and actually, I must say, particularly the women, um, were very realistic that whatever changes 
in policy or in practice may happen, will not happen immediately. It's not going to be an overnight change. There are legal reforms that are needed for customary rights to be better recognized on paper and then in practice. There's a need to get an international awareness as well to push for consumer-driven advocacy in relation to the palm oil sector and palm oil sustainability. There's a need to work through international finance corporations and all these big bodies that are funding and financing palm oil uh, multinational conglomerates. So you need a multi-pronged approach. And for many Marind, the fruit of all this work, really, the reason they're doing it is for their children and for their grandchildren, um, whom they say are the victims of these ecological transformations that are happening. Children that are not born, children that may never be born. And when they talk about children, it's both humans, they go plant and animal children. It's really a multi-species understanding of generations to come. Justice, hope, freedom, these are things that will require a lot of time, a lot of energy and effort. And their biggest concern is that, you know, are we going to be able to sustain the solidarities and the momentum to keep doing this? And so these kinds of tensions and frictions are just as much at play in the advocacy scene as these more high profile international and national level campaigns. You mentioned children there and how big driver for this advocacy has been for future generations. I want you to tell us the story that you used in a piece that you recently wrote about the oil palm industry and you opened with this story about a child. Can you tell us a little bit about that particular story which is pretty heart-wrenching and why you wanted to tell it? Yeah, I know the one. So the piece I published in Sapiens, which is a popular anthropology magazine, uh, really looks at the dark side of the course of sustainable palm oil initiatives, which over the last decade or so have sought to raise the bar on palm oil production by encouraging companies to establish conservation areas or high conservation value zones in order to counter some of the more destructive effects of land clearing and oil palm development. And so what the article was trying to do was to point out that, in fact, from many indigenous Marwins' perspective, conservation and capitalism are really two sides of the same coin, in the sense that both conservation initiatives and capitalist projects tend to exclude indigenous communities from the lands and from the multi-species relations that they have traditionally cultivated. And so I opened this piece with uh, what was to me a really heart-wrenching anecdote because it really it speaks in a very poignant way to the, the severance of both humans that are alive and humans that are dead from the environment, from the society that is nature. So the story that I tell is, is one of a little boy who died of dysentery after drinking water contaminated by mill effluents from a nearby oil palm plantation. His parents uh, wanted to bury the child inside the ancestral graveyard, which was now located inside a monocrop oil pump concession. And the company refused because they said it was unhygienic. And they said that, you know, burying a body in the plantation would attract pests and insects and therefore harm the oil palm's growth and yield. So then the parents of this child asked for the for the infant to be buried instead in one of the conservation zones, which the company had set up as part of its commitment to sustainable palm oil production. And again, the company refused because conservation zones, they said, were there to protect flora and fauna and non-company personnel were therefore not allowed into these areas because they would disturb the animals and plants that these zones uh, intended to preserve. And so in the end, this child is buried by the side of the Trans-Papuan Highway, a mega development project in West Papua. And the parents were haunted by these nightmares of their child being alone by the side of this dusty highway, being trampled by 
overloaded trucks carrying the fresh fruit bunches from the plantation to the mill. And they spoke about this child never being able to find rest, never being able to find peace, never being able to rest uh, with his plant and animal kin. And to me, the anecdote speaks really powerfully to the violence that both conservation and capitalism do to indigenous life worlds. Um, not only is violence at play in the everyday life of people today in Marrake, but also Marind are no longer able to find peace in death with species that they consider to be companions um, in ways that transcend life-death divides. So the piece was really trying to bring out this sort of terrible sense of loss, terrible sense of also consternation, right? A lot of Marind are confused by the purpose of conservation, which, which excludes them from zones where they formerly hunted, fished and foraged, in the name, ironically, of preserving a nature that all palm corporations also destroy, right? Mm. Um, so I was trying to point to that that irony of sustainable palm oil really as something that comes in two shades of green, one being the green Eden of these supposed conservation zones that glued humans, and then the other green being the green desert, really, of one of crops where few plants and animals can thrive uh, and where Marind, once again, find themselves um, excluded. Right. And it's interesting, you know, you're talking about how they've kind of not listened to the people or respected their traditions, their their ways of life and death and those practices. But on the other hand, you also point out that a lot of these companies are also co-opting some of those local customs for their own advantage, like reciprocity and exchange and that kind of thing. Can you explain what you mean there and give us an example of how that's taking place? Yeah, sure. So that was a really interesting finding from my research. I suppose there were three dimensions of local culture and social norms that I felt that it was quite obvious the corporations had tapped into and were able to manipulate or instrumentalize to further their, their ends. Um, so one of these was, uh, as you just pointed out, this ethic of reciprocity and exchange, right? And so the way this would work was, would be that companies would organize a consultation, right? Or a socialisasi, as it's in Indonesia, really just to, to introduce the palm oil project to communities, tell them what the purpose of it was, what sort of benefit they could get out of it. And they were not yet at the stage of asking communities to surrender lands. It was really an initial sort of meeting. But what often happens is that the companies bring a lot of gifts, so food, cigarettes, pens, all kinds of things, and gift them to community members, which creates a sense of obligation then on the part of communities who feel that they have very little to give in return to, to these corporations apart from their land. And so this kind of sets up a condition of indebtedness, which then makes it hard for communities to say no when the corporations come back a week or so later and invite them to cede or surrender lands for oil palm mm -hmm. development. Right. And so that was that was very, very, um, very obvious to me. Another area of social life that the companies were instrumentalizing was ritual. Marmite have a whole range of rituals that serve to pacify their relationships to ancestral spirits, to ensure harmonious connections with forest plants and animals and so on. And a lot of these corporations by one mean or another, had, had actually quite in-depth knowledge of the, the way these rituals work. Really? Um, mm -hmm. The procedure, yeah, the spells involved, um, the incantations, the sort of material objects that are required and so on. And so there were times when, when these companies actually would offer to organize, for instance, pig sacrifice rituals or rain-making rituals and so on, not necessarily at the behest of the communities. And, and I have an article coming out uh, about this in Oceania uh, in a month or so, which looks at what happens when, when rituals that are being co-opted by corporations work? The outcome of some of these co-opted rituals or corporate rituals, if you want to call them that, are problematic because they, they speak to a kind, of, a kind of power that corporations have, which somehow makes their rituals efficacious. The power of ritual is really one of the most potent ways in which companies are able to sort of 
infiltrate and you know i'm an anthropologist so you know as an mm. anthropologist i try to take seriously the possibility that there is something supernatural at play it's certainly the way that marwin conceive it but we're talking here about a strange enchantment of capitalism itself not just magical but actually corporations themselves as wielder of strange and potent forms of sorcery in effect I mean, could someone not argue back at you that the fact that the corporations are taking the care to better understand the Marind and their customs and their rituals, could that not be seen as also a positive thing, do you think? Or is that argument just far too naive? Mm, It's a really good question. First of all, I don't know how these companies get this information. Right. So Mm. another massive source of friction, rumor and gossip in the villages is how are they getting all this customary data, you know, so to speak? Yeah. How do they know so much about our traditions? And indeed, my own fieldwork at times was jeopardized because not surprisingly, there were suspicions that the Mm. anthropologist might have been the one who was passing on all this, uh, you know, traditional ecological knowledge. So there's that side of this, you know, who is working with these companies, who is passing on this information. A lot of this is sacred knowledge that can only be transmitted by particular ritual experts. And none of the ones that I talked to, you know, admitted, admitted. To, to to having interacted with the companies this way. Mm. So there's a lot of opacity mm. on that sort of the front of the story. My other, I suppose, reservation was that so many of these rituals that the corporations organize, so many of these consultations that involve, you know, rituals or customary knowledge in some form or another are all ultimately driven by the desire to acquire land from the communities, right? That That is always the ultimate goal. And indeed, another area or another dimension to this sort of manipulation is this very complex terminology that corporations use to talk about things like compensation. They use all kinds of different terms, including, you know, indigenous Marin terms, but also terms from that are used outside of West Papua in places like Sumatra. And then there's a big misunderstanding among communities as to what these terms actually mean. And so, you know, are we surrendering our land? Is this a temporary surrender? Um, are we going to get the land back once the compensation money runs out. So there's a lot of mm. there's a lot of in- lack of clarity and lack of information going around. So that those would be, I suppose, my reservations in terms of thinking about is a genuine process of trying to understand the indigenous worldview, the indigenous values of land mm. um, at play in Marauke. Right. And I guess that kind of circles us maybe back to this, this point you were making earlier about conservation. Tell us a little bit more about your concerns around sustainable palm oil extraction or so-called. So I had a lot of reservations in writing that piece because one of the things I was worried about and that I hope um, you know I didn't do was to suggest that sustainable palm oil isn't working and therefore we should go back to a business as usual approach. And that's certainly not what I was trying to say. There has been a whole proliferation of sustainable palm oil standards and certification uh, bodies uh, in the last 10 years. The biggest one is the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. And I used to work very closely with this multi-stakeholder body back when I was working with Forest People's Program. And they're doing important work because they're trying to raise the bar on palm oil production, um, both on sort of the environmental front and on the human rights front. And they're encouraging companies to go beyond what national laws in Indonesia and elsewhere require on both the human and the environmental side of agricultural production. The problem with sustainable palm oil, um, from what I understand from my fieldwork and from talking to communities, is that there's a massive gap, not only between the sustainability standards on paper and in practice, but also a big gap between the sustainability standards and national laws. And so it's ironic because the sustainability standards are there precisely because national laws are weak, 
But at the same time, even companies that are trying to do the right thing end up finding themselves stuck because they are bound by national requirements that require that they start producing within a certain amount of time. And that certain amount of time may not be enough to actually adopt a genuinely human rights-based approach to consent, for instance, mm-hmm. to consultation, to their respective local culture. So there's a kind of a, right. a kind of a double bind at play. One of the other issues for me with sustainable palm oil is that it, it continues to be framed primarily as an ecological issue, right? So the anti-palm oil maskets tend to be endangered charismatic megafauna, orangutans amongst others. Now they're indubitably part of the story and I'm certainly not trying to downplay the risk to endangered species, but what's much less in the limelight I think is the human side of the palm oil story. And here I'm not talking so much about the labor rights issues, which are of course important, but I'm talking about the indigenous peoples that are being displaced and dispossessed to allow for production to happen in the first place. Mm -hmm. And that for me is a really, really worrying situation, even in terms of work that's coming out um, on sustainability. uh, A lot of it's focused on sort of human rights in terms of production and consumption. So the right to the consumer to know whether or not they're making the right choice, an informed choice in buying palm oil products, whether or not that palm oil is sustainable. Mm. Uh, And then the production side of sustainability tends to be labor rights, right? So Mm. gender, health, pay, and so on. But everything that precedes that, everything that has to do with the land acquisition process, the people that have to be displaced or otherwise dispossessed to allow production to happen in the first place is still not part of the sustainability conversation. And that's where my big grievance lies. And it's, I suppose, what I try to do through my work, um, albeit as an academic, to try to bring that side of the picture to global attention, not least because a lot of my research has shown that, in fact, not getting the consent of communities on the ground before you start producing palm oil can lead to all kinds of problems down the line for corporations. So there's a big business case for community consent. You get protests, you get Mm -hmm. violence, you get arson, you get all kinds of, you know, grassroots activism that can impede not just the economic profit-making ventures of these companies, but also their reputation. So there's all kinds of risks entailed. So I'm not trying to downplay consent as a right. At the end of the day, it's a fundamental right. But there is a business case for community consent that I think is mm-hmm. one that's worth bringing to the fore. Yeah, yeah. Now, big news currently around palm oil, obviously, is the pending EU ban on palm oil. And this is hotly debated. What, what's your view on it? What impact do you think that such a ban will have Yes, certainly great news and news that, as I understand, has been received, has had a sort of a mixed response from the range of different non-governmental organizations that I've worked with, particularly in Indonesia. Again, this goes back to what I was talking about in terms of the real multiplicity of perspectives of indigenous peoples themselves in West Papua and beyond in the face of oil palm plantations. Different areas of the archipelago have different histories of monocrop oil palm cultivation. The longest histories being, of course, in Sumatra and the shortest in West Papua which is sort of the new palm oil frontier. I think the real positive thing about the EU moratorium is that it's going to prevent new plantings or the clearing of primary native forests to make way for more plantations, And which I do think is the biggest issue. There's been a lot of research to show that, in fact, all palm plantations tend to, to exacerbate poverty particularly in areas where they are new planting, so where people were still dependent on the forest rather than other less directly land-dependent subsistence. So that's definitely a positive side of the moratorium. I think that the moratorium will certainly have to take into account things like, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands of smallholders who are already part of this palm oil production system um, and who will be needing to find alternative economic livelihoods once this moratorium is in place. So that's that's a really important consideration and one that I think NGOs also need to have, you know, in their thinking through these kinds of big international level changes. There's always a risk with NGO work of what I call the moral hazard, right? It's, it's pushing for things that don't necessarily represent the views of the communities whose voices or aspirations NGOs 
purport to bring to an international level. And so that's the sort of more ambivalent side of the story. I mean, I've always had mixed feelings about boycotting Palmel, you know, outside mm. of this moratorium context, because there are, as I said, many, many smallholders who are already working within the system. And the question, the big question will be what are going to be the economic livelihood alternatives mm-hmm. for these communities? Mm-hmm. And so that does actually brings me to the question about the Murrind and, you know, you were talking about the fragmentations and the contestations within Murrind peoples themselves. And I'm wondering if there's a generational thing there. Are we? Can you say a little bit about that? Are the young people keen to keep up the advocacy and fight for their rights or are they just ready to go to the towns? What, what's going on there generationally um, within those communities? That's a great question. Generational differences are certainly at play in terms of these fragmentations and divides between those who are pro or for old palm and those who position themselves as contra or against old palm. It's sort of hard to assign different generations to different sides of this for and against stance. There are a lot of young Marind who are looking to the palm oil sector as an opportunity to get a stable employment a salary, and to then progress beyond plantations in Marauke to plantations in Sumatra, for instance. Many see the opportunity for, for education as well. So there's that side of the story. At the same time, a lot of the youths are actually the ones who are involved in these grassroots land rights campaign. And these youths are often also the same youth that blame a lot of the elders for, for instance, signing land surrender contracts that they can't read, entering into consultations with companies without actually really understanding the legality behind land acquisition processes. And so these youth are young people who have been educated, who can read it, who can write, but who are not the ones that companies are talking to. It's the elders that the companies are talking to. And so there's an amount of frustration that they know more about the law, and yet the decisions are being made by the elders, who Mm. traditionally are the ones who make decisions. So there's sort of both sides of the story there when it comes to youth perspectives and engagements with the palm oil sector. And the intersection with gender is a really important one. And here it's much more black and white in the sense that a lot of the Marwind women I talked to, both young, middle-aged, elderly, expressed a great sense of frustration grievance and in fact anger towards many of the Marin men. Marin society is very patriarchal, so it's the men, the, the elderly men who make decisions often, um, particularly when it comes to land, land use and management. Women tend not to be part of these conversations. They're rarely in, involved or invited to attend consultations or socialisasi. And so they really have very, very little say in these sorts of decisions. At the same time, women very much, they see themselves as childbearers. They see themselves as the one responsible for feeding children, for caring for the earth. Um, the, the land itself is seen as a, as a maternal figure. And so they feel that the men who are making decisions on behalf of everybody are really depriving them of their capacity to be mothers, to care for children, to care for the earth, care for the land. And all of that is, you know, entrenched these sort of gendered power dynamics, which prevent women from, from having a say in these kinds of decisions that affect them. So there's a lot of frustration coming from the women about these men who are sometimes accepting compensation money, spending it in the cities, um, you know, on alcohol or other things, and then not bringing the money back to the village to buy food. And um, so that's a particular line of divide that I think is probably more accentuated than the intergenerational sort of um, frictions because young and old women alike share this grievance against the men. Right. And the frustrations that the women have, how are they manifest? Are they just something they talk about amongst themselves? Or as you were saying, is it more overt in that they're getting involved in the advocacy internationally, nationally? 
So a lot of the women shared their frustrations with me in very informal settings, certainly when the men were not around. The fact that I was a woman meant that they felt comfortable talking to me about these things because none of my male colleagues from the NGOs really got those sorts of insights. So it's a private conversation that's happening among the women. At the same time, the women are the ones who are trying to think about alternative economic livelihoods. So some of them, for instance, are thinking about, okay, well, Sago's our staple food. How can we try to you know, establish markets either in Jayapura or Merauke City to sell our forest products? Can we develop a handicraft or artwork sort of market for, you know, forest derived products and so on? They're trying to think outside the box of a yes or no to palm oil, but instead a sort of a, a third way of Hmm. Um, so I think, I mean, one of the challenges for women, of course, it, Maroon society is very patriarchal. Um, so I think these women have a very limited opportunity to actually, you know, speak about these issues publicly. I mean, a lot of the NGOs working there, I mean, they're male dominated too. So it's hard for them to talk to NGO people who can identify or sort of empathize with their grievances. And so that's certainly something which I think so far the NGO advocacy hasn't really paid enough attention to the real gender based dimensions, not just of land use, but of advocacy as well. You, you said before that palm oil is here to stay, right? So given that, what do you think will happen to the Marin people and their culture if the forest continues to be depleted? What's another generation look like for the Marin? Wow, that's such a difficult question. When I was in Merauke and I asked people this question, you know, what happens if the forest disappears? What's going to happen to Marin? And one of the most common answers I got was there is no future. You know, time has come to a stop. Time, time is not moving anymore. When all palm arrives, we lose the forest, we lose the landscape, time comes to a stop. That's literally the expression that they use. And for me, this was incredibly powerful because in some ways, by rejecting the idea that there can be a future, a lot of Marmind are rejecting the notion of hope itself. Hope being, of course, a future-oriented disposition. It's something that is to come. Mm. I see in this not just a resignation to the destruction of a whole life world, human and non-human, but possibly also a sort of resistance. So when Marans say that time has come to a stop and there is no future, there is no hope, for me, it's a way in which they're also saying that they're refusing the particular kind of futures and the particular kinds of hopes that the state and that corporations are imposing on them. Futures that are driven by productivism, capitalism, by profits, by extraction, by exploitation. And so I think it's this this logic of capitalism, the kind of temporality of capitalism that Marwind are rejecting by actually refusing the possibility of the future itself. Now, of course, everyday life continues in the upper beyond. People continue with their everyday lives. But I think this refusal of future and hopes, it's symptomatic of, of a loss of the broader frameworks within which everyday actions actually accrue meaning. So I don't know what the future will look like for Marwind, uh, you know, if all palm is indeed here to stay and will continue to proliferate as it is currently doing. As an anthropologist, I think my best answer is really the one I I can give you is the one that Marin gave me, that we can't think about the future when our past has disappeared. And by that, they mean, of course, the loss of the forest in which, going back to what we were saying earlier, the past is inscribed, right? that the landscape is the past. And without a past, it's very hard to think about the tomorrow. So there's loss here. There's also creativity. There's, you know, there's courage. There's huge courage among these very same communities who are seeing the frameworks of meaning of their life being obliterated. Grassroots advocacies continue. People are planting sago everywhere as a way of reclaiming their land. They're activating plants as part of their multi-species struggle. There's a growing awareness at the national and international level. So I would say there is hope. I know a lot of Marin wouldn't agree, but perhaps their reluctance to think with and through hope is also a way of protecting themselves from the fact that so many of these hopes have been dashed and that perhaps not believing in a future is a way of protecting yourself from the particular kind of future that have so often been imposed on Indigenous peoples in West Papua and elsewhere. You, Sophie, personally, are you feeling hopeful? You mentioned that, you know, there is the advocacy of, you know, with which you are involved. Do you feel like there's some gains being made nationally, if not internationally, to bring awareness to 
through the losses, cultural as well as the environmental and human losses here? Yeah, I think there is definitely. What has happened over the last three or four years in terms of advocacy has been unprecedented. West Papua is a very, very difficult place to do advocacy of any kind, really. I have a lot of respect for the people who are continuing to do that on the ground. I still do believe that until there is national legal reform, the passing of the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Bill, for instance, that Drokoi has been promising, until those sort of legal policy level changes happen, Indigenous communities like Marand will find it very, very hard to effect change and to curb this sort of large-scale techno-industrial expansion that's happening on their grounds. But I do believe there is hope. I see, particularly in the youth, a lot of momentum and a real sense that the struggle is not just about them. It's also about plants and animals, about the land. It's about a real more than human world that is at stake here. So I think there is hope. Thank goodness. We always like to end on some kind of positive note. I personally do. I'm so pleased that you found it. And do you know what? I have hope just from listening to you, Sophia, knowing that you're out there telling the stories and fighting the fight. So thank you so much for sharing your work with us today. I'm going to put links to some of those articles that we referred to in the discussion we've just had. I'll put them up on the website so that folks can go and find them. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Emma. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr. Sophie Chow, a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Sydney's School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry and an honorary postdoctoral fellow at Macquarie University. Talking Indonesia will return on the 25th of July, hosted by Dave McRae. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.